We're continuing a series on change. How to change, how to bring about change in our life. How God changes us. I want to read a passage of scripture that I think is just full of a wealth of, of uh, truth. And um, we'll be getting to it in, in, in several minutes, but it's found in Genesis chapter 3. And I think if you understand Genesis chapter 3, you're going to understand the nature of change and how it occurs. Two weeks ago when we started this series, we, we talked about how not to bring about change in our life. You don't do it by trying to manipulate the outside. Change doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. And this morning, what I want to talk about, all I want to get across is what is the heart of the problem with change? What's the heart of the matter? What are we dealing with? There's a lot of misunderstandings to, to confront. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. This is God's sort of no trespassing sign. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Note the deception there. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, all of a sudden this no trespassing sign starts to look pretty appealing. And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. Let's pray. Lord, you have promised us that your word, when it goes forth in the anointing of your spirit, is as sharp as a two-edged sword and cuts asunder the soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And Lord, we pray that it would do that with us here this morning. Pierce us, Lord God, that we may see ourselves as we truly are, that we may be changed into what you want us to become. God, I pray this morning that this would be a time of, of, of revelation and unveiling for us. We ask in your name. Amen. Has anyone here ever had... What, the, the profound point that I want to get across this morning, it's really the only point I want to get across, and it's, it's, it's profoundly profound, is that to address a problem, you've got to address the problem. To address a problem, you've got to address the problem. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. If you've ever had food poisoning, you know what it's like. If you haven't had it, I'll describe it to you. It's sort of like blow up a balloon and then let it go. That's something what happens when you have food poisoning. That's what you feel like. Or picture a rocket with two rocket boosters on both ends going against one another. That's what it feels like to have food poisoning. Your, your stomach goes into these convulsions, and, and you, and I hope we're not prudish here this morning, because we all know that this happens. And so I will say it, but you, you throw up a lot. It's called projecting, in fact. Your stomach goes, <laughs> it shoots out. It's nasty stuff. It's really nasty stuff. Well, I got this one time. I ate some bad fish, and I got really sick, and they had to bring me into the hospital. And while I was in the hospital, I was doing this balloon trick. Uh, you know, it just, the food's just saying, anyway, anyhow, we've got to get out of here. And it's kind of like, you know, you get the, impression, you get the picture. Um, and so I was projecting. I was having a very bad day. 
And the nurse who was there, who was taking care of me, a, a young, young girl, nurse's aide actually, and I was messing the place up really quick. And she was getting frustrated, and I don't blame her. But I heard her say kind of underneath her breath, I wish he'd try to stop that. <laughs> I thought, you know, my half-dead comatose state, like I'm trying to do this. This, this is my idea of a good time. You know, a contest, let's see how much I can do. I enjoy watching you clean up after me. But you see, her problem, what she thought the problem was, and I don't blame her given the situation, but for her the problem was the, problem was the vomit, the throw up. But the real problem wasn't that, was it? That was a symptom of the problem. The problem was the food poisoning. There's a guy that I, I read about, uh, or I, I heard in the news last year, who had gone to the doctor for about six months, and he had these flu-like symptoms. He always felt nauseous. Uh, he was irritable. Sometimes he couldn't sleep at night, but he always felt lethargic, and he kept on going to the doctor. And the doctor kept on thinking it was a bad case of the flu and would give him all this kind of medicine that you'd give if you were treating somebody with flu. He'd give him uh, you know, Pepto-Bismol and aspirin or what have you. And it wasn't until the guy almost died that they finally figured out that he was being poisoned with carbon monoxide in his house. He was dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. If you're going to address the problem, you've got to address the problem and not simply the symptoms of the problem. Or what would you think of a person, a group of people, who are in a burning house, a, the house is on fire downstairs, and they're upstairs, and all they're concerned about is the smoke. Oh, don't you just hate the smell of the smoke? This is such a disgusting smell. We've got to do something about it. Let's get some fans. Let's, let's blow the smoke out of the window. What would you think of people who are just concerned with that? If you're going to address the problem, you've got to address the problem. Now, this makes sense. This is kind of common. This isn't too profound. And yet we frequently forget this simple truth when it comes to dealing with people and when it comes to dealing with ourselves. So you've got a child who's going through that wonderful age of puberty, and, and this, person, this, this child is a little bit distant, a little bit ornery, kind of angry at you, sasses back to you. And we're prone to say... Don't you ever raise your voice to me? You better never address me like that again. Why can't you be polite in the morning? When I say good morning to you, why don't you say good morning back? If you don't say good morning back, I'm not going to give you your allowance. And that's not wrong in and of itself. Okay? That, that's, kids need to know, you know social propriety. But you're not getting to the problem. The real problem, the real poison is why is this kid angry at you in the first place? Why does this kid see you as the enemy? That's the real issue. And so long as you're just barking at the fact that they raise their voice or, or harping on the fact that they don't treat you right in the morning or what have you, you're not addressing the real problem. Or sometimes we do this with our spouses, don't we? Those of you who are married, we, we want the person to be around us more. Uh, they don't spend enough time with us. They don't send us flowers. They don't send us cards. They don't affirm us enough. And so we things like, say things like, why don't you affirm me more? Why don't you be around with me more? I want you here four hours a night, and I want you to do this, and I want you to say this. Or sometimes, I, I, I had a friend one time who loved to go fishing, and his wife would get mad because every weekend he'd go fishing, and, and he'd invite her to go fishing, but she hated to fish. She hated the smell of fish. She hated the look of, look of fish. She hated worms. She hated fishing. And he'd always say, why can't you enjoy fishing? Why, why, it's so important to me. Why can't you just enjoy it? Why can't you go along with, with, with me to this fishing trip? I don't know what... Maybe if you hollered at her a little harder and nagged her a little bit more and, and got a little more mad at it, the whole thing, maybe then she'd start enjoying fishing. <laughs> maybe if you harped on her a little bit more and made her life a little more miserable. You know what? It might work. You could, you could make her so miserable she'd go on the fishing trip with you, but it wouldn't help the issue. You're not dealing with the, the real issue here. 
In fact, it would worsen the issue because she'd resent every minute out of it. She'd be out there fishing and plugging her nose and grinding her teeth. Some things you just can't force from the outside in. And it's like that in our own life. Maybe you've got a temper, a temper problem. Uh, you know, you have a short fuse and it goes off and you tend to swear and then you tend to break things and you know you shouldn't do this and your, your wife tells you that you shouldn't do this and your kids tell you that, that you shouldn't do this and your pastor preaches that you shouldn't do this and you try real hard not to do this. So you try not to break that vase and you try to control your mouth. But what are you dealing with? Are you dealing with the smoke or are you dealing with the fire? Are you dealing with the throw up or are you dealing with what's causing the whole thing? Or you're depressed, and, and, and so people tell you, you know, come on, you're a Christian, you ought to be happy, and, you're, and, 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 you're, and your husband tells you, can't you just pull yourself out of the gutter? Why can't you be a little more jovial, and a little bit more lighthearted, and smile a little bit more, and have a good time? Why do you always have to be so down? And you hear from church that Christians ought to be more than conquerors and ought to be joyful, and so you try hard to be happy. And maybe you even get good at that. You get good at putting a, a smile on your face. You can get good at that. You can train yourself to do that. But are you addressing the problem or are you addressing the symptom of the problem? Or so it is with self-destructive behaviors that people have or so it is with other attitudes that they may have like jealousy or greed. So often we try very hard to change ourselves by addressing the symptom of the problem rather than the problem itself. And it just doesn't work. If you're going to address a problem, you've got to address the problem. And this is why legalism, as we saw two weeks ago, why legalism doesn't work. Why trying to walk the Christian walk and, and, and trying to change by having a bunch of do's and having a bunch of don'ts and rules and regulations, why it just doesn't work. In fact, the New Testament in 2 Timothy says that that kind of thinking is actually demonic. There's demonic spirits that bring about legalism because it ends up doing more harm than good. What legalism is about is trying to get people not to project when they've got food poisoning. You're trying to, get, you're trying to solve a fire by blowing the smoke out of the window. You're trying to fix carbon monoxide poisoning by giving people medicine that's appropriate for the flu. It just doesn't go deep enough. You can harp all you want on people's behavior. You can tell them the do's and tell them the don'ts and tell them the oughts and tell them the shoulds and back it up with a bunch of threats and, and, and coerce and manipulate and get people to look a certain way, but you haven't begun to address the real issue. All you've succeeded in doing is camouflaging the issue. To go back to an analogy we had two weeks ago, you're taking the cow pie and you're making it so it doesn't look like a cow pie, but it's still a cow pie. Why do I have all these gross analogies? I'll tell you why, because you remember those. To address the problem, you've got to address the problem. Now, what is the problem? What is the problem? What are we talking about? Here, I'm going to need you to follow with me closely. Because this is theological, but it's very, very important. We read Romans 7 two weeks ago. And there we saw Paul in this dilemma that we are very frequently in where you want to do the good and you know what is the good to do, but you can't do it. You end up doing the evil. And the evil that you want to avoid, that you know you should avoid, and you want to avoid, you end up doing that. That tells us all, all already that the problem, the main issue that we have to address and deal with if we're ever going to experience profound internal change in our life is more fundamental. Now follow me on this. It's more fundamental than what you think because Paul knows what the right thing to do. It's more fundamental 
than what you even will. It's more fundamental than willpower because Paul, at least on one level, desires to do what's good. It's more fundamental than our behavior. Legalism doesn't work because it only goes as deep as willpower, it only goes as deep as behavior, and it only goes as deep as thought process, but the root of the problem is deeper than that. What you think and what you do and what you feel and what you desire is a result of what the problem is, but it is not itself the problem. And as long as we're obsessed with dealing with behavior and thoughts and attitudes, we'll never get to what the real problem is. We'll be distracted. We'll be so busy blowing smoke out of the house that we won't even realize that there's a fire. The root of the problem is found in the passage that Paul read in the passage that I read. The root of the problem is what Paul calls the flesh. The flesh. The Greek word is sarx. Uh, follow me on this. The flesh doesn't refer to our physical bodies. When Paul says that the spirit fights against the flesh, he doesn't mean that our good spiritual aspect fights against our physical bodies, as though our physical bodies were bad. A lot of harm has actually been done by people identifying their bodies as the enemy. I, I talk to Bethel students a lot who write this in paper or say it out loud that this, the spiritual part of me is, is good, but the physical part of me is bad. And they, de they, they declare war on their bodies. They declare war on their hormones. And they make an enemy out of their physical natures. And then when, when they get married, all of a sudden you're supposed to make a friend of your enemy. But for 25 years, you've been telling yourself that this is the enemy. And friends, it just doesn't work like that. Causes a lot of negative consequences. There's nothing wrong with your body. Your body's okay. Even your hormones are okay. Your, your appetites and your drives are okay. The flesh is more fundamental than, than your skin. When Paul uses the word flesh, what he's really getting at is something like this. It's the spectacles you wear when you look at life. It's a state of being, a state of heart, a state of mind. The flesh, for Paul, is synonymous with other words he uses like carnal mind or the natural man. And it refers to a way of interpreting the world, a way of thinking about the world, a way of experiencing the world. It's, it's the grid we use to interact with in life. It's living life. In a nutshell, the flesh is this. It's living life as though and experiencing life as though it were not true that the true God is God and that you were his creation. To the extent that we live life and experience life and interpret life as though the true God were not God and we were not his creation, to that degree we're living in the flesh. The passage that we read in Genesis 3, I think, spells it out as, 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 as profoundly as it can be spelled out. In Genesis 3, we find the origin of the flesh. We find the origin of the flesh, the origin of the fall. And the essence of that fall, we see in Genesis 3, was deception. Deception. Eve believed a lie, and therefore Eve acted on the lie, and that's the root of humanity's problems, and in our own individual lives, that's the root of our individual problems. There's a deception going on. Now, the deception is not a deception so much of the mind. It's a deception of the heart. Deception of the heart. It's a deception at the core of our being, and that's more fundamental than just what we think. I have a relative who uh, is deathly afraid of flying. She's never flown in her life, and it's freaking her out because she's got to, uh, she's got to take a, a, a plane trip this summer. Um, and uh, she's just deathly afraid of it, and she'll be doing okay for you know, one or two days, and then she'll hear about a plane crash. And she just, you know, the other night she was watching the, the, the news, and they showed this picture, a rerun of that plane crash in Iowa. 
And she just freaks out. I can't go. I can't do it. I can't do it. Now, she knows in her mind, she knows with her intellect that all the stats about you know, riding in a plane, that it's safer than, than riding in a car and, and all of that, she knows that with her mind. She tells, itself to, she tells it to herself all the time. Still at the core of her being, for whatever reason, she's got a picture of a plane crashing with a hundred and some people on it. And whenever she thinks of flying in a, in a plane, that's the plane she thinks about. And so far below what she thinks on a conscious level, she's got this petrified fear of flying because at the core of her being, she believes that she's going to die. Some beliefs are more fundamental than just what goes on in your mind. Here's another illustration. Several years ago, I may have shared this before, I don't remember, but several years ago, I was trying to fix my garage door opener. Maybe I told you about this, but it's a good one. Um, and I have the mechanical skills of a mentally challenged turtle. And so I can't fix diddly squat. When I try to fix something, it gets more and more broken. But I hate paying people to do what I should be able to do on my own. So my garage door opener was fixed and I was broken, so I was going to fix it. So I spent three hours taking it apart and getting this manual that no one in the right mind could ever understand and trying to, to, to put the thing together and whatnot. And I was getting more and more and more and more frustrated. So finally, in an act of absolute godliness, I spoke some eloquent poetry and ripped the uh, garage door opener out of the ceiling of the garage. And it was just swinging there. <laughs> we had to drive around it for the next couple of weeks until I got it fixed. Now, what was going on there? I asked myself, you know, I was, I was surprised at myself. I mean, you know, how, where did this come from? When I began to analyze it, when I begin to analyze it, I think it comes down to this. I'm caught. There. Now I'm free. Yes. I think it comes down to this. I, I, and you wouldn't think, you'd think that, you know, 35 years of, of being a failure at fixing things would have taught me the lesson that there's no life to be found in fixing things. But what I discovered was, though I know with my mind that Jesus is my source of life, though I know with my mind that, that all my self-esteem and value and masculinity and everything has to come from what God thinks about me and not from what anyone else thinks about me, though I know that with my head, nevertheless, there was at a real, real deep level a belief that men are supposed to be able to fix things. Real men can fix things. And this is why I always avoid fixing things, because I'm threatened by them. When I fail, I feel, I feel like I'm not a man. Other guys in the block can fix things. I can't even pound a nail. It's just not fair. And so when I was trying to fix this thing, this was like a major indictment on me, not in my mind, but at the core of my being. And I was beginning to rebel. I was beginning to feel ashamed. And so what happened was I believed that if I can't be a man by fixing the thing, well, one thing I know I can do, and that is be a man by breaking things. I'm always good at that, so I busted it. That's the kind of deception that we're dealing with. It's at the core of our being. It's not manifested by what we say we believe. It's not manifested by even what we think we believe. It's manifested by our life, by the general patterns of our life. What do you really, in your heart of hearts, in your core of being, believe about yourself? And what, in your heart of hearts, do you believe about God, about the world, about ultimate reality, about where value is to be had, about where fulfillment is to be found? And I'm not asking what do you think you believe. I'm asking what's in the core of your being. And that's manifested by your life in general. The root of the problem, the poison, the fire, the carbon monoxide that we're dealing with here is a deception that goes to the heart of our being. And the deception is twofold. And you see this in Genesis 3. 
First of all, the serpent lies about who God is. And then the serpent lies about who Eve is. The serpent paints a picture for Eve. Just like with this relative of mine, there was a picture painted about plane crashes, okay? And it got into her like poison. So also, the serpent paints a picture for Eve about God. A God who isn't worth living for. God's not the true God that he says he is. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's not all powerful. He's not all wise. He's not all good. Why, God is this puny deity who's threatened by you. He didn't even plant that tree. That tree's, been as, old, that tree's as old as God, and that's how God got to be God. And if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like God. And he's threatened by that. So you get this whimsy kind of puny deity up there. And when you lie about God, you lie about Eve. And so Eve now gets the message if I'm going to find life, if I'm going to realize my potential, actualize my potentiality, if I'm going to really live and be all that I can be, I've got to do it on my own. There's something I've got to do, there's something I've got to get, there's something I've got to acquire for myself, and it's found right there on that tree. The lie of the serpent is this. Your life, your fullness, what life is really about is to be found in your doing. In your doing, in what you do, and what you acquire, and what you get. And the minute we believe that deception, we cease being human beings and we begin to become human doings. Because now our essence, to the degree that we believe that lie, our essence is defined by what we do. This is why I think the Bible calls legalism demonic, because that's what it is in a religious way. Your essence, your value, your worth, your standing before God is defined by what you do. If we believe in the core of our being, if we believe in the, in the innermost depths of our being, that God was really as great and as powerful and as loving and as kind and as gracious and as beautiful as the Bible says that he is. If we believe that, and if we believed that we were truly made in the image of God and that the best thing we could ever have in life is God and that the fulfillment of life is to be found in God and the happiness and value of life is to be found in God, if we had that at the core of our being, we literally would never sin. We wouldn't have these problems. We wouldn't need coercion to change. Whenever we sin, we're simply acting out a core belief that what that is offering to us is better than what he offers to us. And that's the pull. That's the, the, the magnet quality of sin. Sin, deception, fogs our perception of who God is. And sin, uh, deception, fogs our perception of who we are. And the serpent, as the serpent lied to Eve, is lying to us all the time. We are in a world that is full of carbon monoxide. And we are being poisoned continually. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. The pattern of the, don't be conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, there's a pattern of this world, and that pattern is the message of the enemy, the deception of the enemy. And it's constantly making inroads into our minds and inroads into our hearts that lie to us about who God is and who we are. Almost everything that comes across on TV and almost everything that comes across on the radio and almost everything that you read in the newspaper or read in some magazine and almost everything you hear about on commercials in one way or another involves assumptions that are deceptive. Assumptions that are de deceptive. And I'm not saying, oh, don't watch any TV, don't ever read. Don't. You'd have to, you're in the world. We've got to face up to this problem. But the truth is, is that we're being bombarded with it continually. Let me give you one example. My daughter and I, a couple years ago, are watching TV. And uh, on, on this TV came uh, a, a commercial. Uh, it was a Clairol hair conditioner commercial. And there was this voluptuous, wonderful, beautiful woman up there, you know, uh, 
and that's already telling my daughter something. It's sending a real message that if you want to be in the spotlight, if you want to really get recognition, this is what you have to look like. If you have, you have to have that kind of hair and that kind of face and this kind of figure, which only about 1% of the population can ever have, you wonder why we have uh, one out of every four women having an eating disorder. There's poison going into their brain. My little daughter's watching this. And so this, this woman says, yeah, she's doing her hair, you know. You probably are wondering uh, how my hair got this beautiful. Yes, that's exactly what we were wondering. <laughs> and then she tells us, well, it was by using Clairol hair conditioner. And the punchline was this. Clairol hair conditioner, it's you, but better than you. Right out of Genesis 3. And then it says, with Clairol hair conditioner, you can begin to like yourself, maybe even love. That's what she said. If she was Linda Blair levitating, it couldn't have been any more demonic than it was. This was just, this was a, a serpent, slithering serpent, just hissing at my daughter. Look at that tree. You can be like this. You've got to get this. You've got to reach out. You've got to grab it. You've got to acquire it. You've got to buy it. Because as you are, you're just not good enough. As you are, you're defective. You're missing something. You're missing something about what life is all about. And it's deception. And that assumption, no one comes out and says this, but the assumption lodges at a, at, at a fundamental level in her mind and in her heart. You wonder why kids are so preoccupied with how they look or what they do or what they wear or what have you. We're bombarded, and there's demonic energy behind this bombardment every day about, with lies about who God is and lies about who we are. And in, and in many different ways, it's just saying, look at the tree, look at the tree. This is where life is to be found. It's a deception. This is where life is to be found in, 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 in the nice house. Life is to be found in the cars. Life is to be found in your nice clothing. Life is to be found in the money that you make. Life is to be found in the perfect spouse that you're going to have. Life is to be found in the perfect children you're going to raise. Life is to be found in how, what kind of impression you leave with your church. Life is to be found in climbing the totem pole, to, totem pole, totem pole of, of success. That's where life is. You've got to get this. Life is to be found. Here's a basic one in our culture. Life is to be found in sexual pleasure. Why, that's a basic need. It's a basic right. Everyone's got to have it. It's like food. It's like air. It's like water. You can't go your life without having as much sex as possible because that's where life is to be found. You've got to have it. And if you believe that deception, if that deception gets rooted in us, well, then, then, then you're going to find whatever else you believe with your mind about sexual morality, whatever else you, you, you say that, that, that you believe, you're going to find your sexual impulses very, very hard to control because there's something going on in your life that's more fundamental than what you will, that's more fundamental than what you think, it's more fundamental than what you say, and it's more fundamental than what you do. It's a lie. It's a poison. It's a fire. It's carbon monoxide. And it drives you. And you feel that, well, if you're being celibate, if you're abstaining, well, then, then you're missing out on what, what, it, what life is really all about. And, of course, you don't believe that with your mind, but the, it's rooted there in your heart. And where there is poison, speak graphically, where there is food poisoning, there will be vomit. And where there's carbon monoxide, there will be flu-like symptoms. And where there's smoke, there will be fire. And to the degree that we eat of this tree... We manifest all the areas in our life that we want to change, which is what we're talking about now. If the tree of life to you, whatever else you say you believe, if the tree of life to you is money, you're going to be anxious about it. You're going to be striving for it. You're going to be unpeaceful with it. You're going to be prideful with it, maybe. You're going to be greedy. You're going to be jealous. You're going to be envious. I feel like doing a garage door trick on this thing right here. <laughs> I'll be a man. It's going to be there. I can't help it be there. If, if your tree is social status... You're going to be envious of other people's things. You'll never be able to really just enjoy the fact that someone else got blessed. You know, people like that. You know, someone else 
gets a promotion, they get a new car, they get a new house, and you can't really enjoy it because you're thinking, oh, I want that, I've got to get that. What's going on there? Poison, fire, carbon dioxide. The tree that you're eating from is sex, you're going to find your, your behavior, your attitudes, your thoughts uncontrollable. If the, if, if, if the tree that you're eating from, if the deception that is there is life is found in your spouse, you'll be forever trying to make your spouse the perfect spouse. You'll be nagging them, you'll be coercing them, you'll be manipulating them, or you'll just go around being disappointed, or you'll go around pretending like you have that relationship and sweeping under the rug everything that needs to be dealt with. It can't help but happen. Given the poison, the consequence is going to be there. And it won't do any good to hear more and more sermons about how you shouldn't be trying to manipulate your spouse, how you shouldn't be hungry for money, how you shouldn't be questing after better and better houses and better and better clothes or, or what have you. Because what's going on in our life is more fundamental than what we think, more fundamental than what we hear. It's poison. It's deception at the root of our being. Which is why Paul can say, I know what is the good to do and I want to do it, but I end up doing the evil. And I know what is the evil and I don't want to do it, but that's what I end up doing. If we're going to address the problem, we've got to address the problem. And that means that we've got to look past the smoke. We've got to look past the flu-like symptoms. We've got to look past the vomit and get to the root of the problem. Now, what, what do you do about this? That's next week. Ha <laughs> ha, I hooked you. <laughs> so next week, just suffer. No, what, what do you do about it? I, I'll close by just saying this. There is something we can do about to get that poison out of our life. But the first and most, in some ways, most fundamental step we take is to be free, to free ourselves from thinking that it's our job to fix the symptoms when the problem's still there. If we're ever going to get to the problem, we've got to be, give ourselves some space and give other people space. Where if they have food poisoning, they need to throw up. And if there's a, a fire, you better hope to see smoke. And if there's carbon monoxide poisoning, you better hope the person reveals it in some of their symptoms. There's a certain freedom that comes just by knowing that the issue isn't your behavior, that the issue isn't your thoughts, the issue isn't your feelings, the issue isn't your willpower. There's a freedom there because now you stop trying to manipulate that stuff. There's a freedom. You don't, it's not your job and it's not my job to fix people. It's not even our job to try to fix ourselves. And there's a freedom that comes with that. We, we, we give each other space. And in fact, that freedom, as we're going to see next week, is one of the most essential things to have when it comes to being healed from the poison in your life. This morning we're going to we'll just close with prayer, but I, I want to invite you. Maybe someone's here and, and, and you, you know you've got the fire going on in your, in your life. You, you know you've got the, the poison. And uh, maybe you've been hollered at uh, a lot not to have smoke. You've been hollered a lot not to have throw up. And I want to encourage you. I want to tell you that, first of all, this is a place where that's okay. And if you want prayer for that or want to join with somebody and just release some of that, there'll be people up here who would love to pray with you, and I invite you uh, to come forward.